0: Yuma, my name is Jude Barlow and I'm a Ngunnawal woman. My family are Wellabaloa people, a family group within the Ngunnawal nation. Ngunnawal people are the traditional custodians of Canberra and the surrounding region. And my ancestors have lived on this country for thousands of years, from the mountains to the life-giving rivers. I want to welcome you now to the land of my ancestors, on which the National Gallery of Australia stands. And I will welcome you in the language of my ancestors, a language once thought dead. But we Ngunnawal people, we know it was only sleeping, and we have awoken it. Yangu Nalamanyin dunimanyin. Ngunnawalwari daro Darwanuna normbanya Marabiji mulangarijinyila. Gulambanyi. Naraganawali yeri. Yarabinyin. nonna yarwi yangu. yumalundi. Nunawalwari, Darawalwari. Today we're all gathering together on Ngunnawal country and this is my ancestor's spiritual homeland and we are keeping the pathways of our ancestors alive by all of us walking together as one. You may leave your footprints here. Welcome to Ngunnawal country. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land's on which you are listening to this podcast, and I pay them my profound respects and thank them for their many outstanding contributions to the life of this nation. Jan Nima Thank you.
1: Artists' Artists is a podcast brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. I'm Jennifer Higgy. And over the course of the series, I'll be chatting with artists about works of art from the National Collection that inspire, move, or intrigue them. Bridget Riley is one of the most innovative and radical painters of the modern period. Born in London in 1931, she still lives in the city. In her 1996 essay, Painting Now, she declared that painting without its problems Can no longer be painting. It depends upon them for its existence. The National Gallery of Australia has 15 works of art by Riley in its collection, including a new acquisition, Dancing to the Music of Time from 2022. The first work you've chosen to talk about today is by the Australian artist Howard Taylor, who lived from 1918 to 2001. He created No Horizon in 1994 from synthetic polymer paint on marine plywood. It's a curved piece, entirely white, and is just shy of two metres in height. When did you first come across this artist? It was
2: during a visit that I made in the late 70s to Australia. It was planned that I should have an exhibition at the New Art Gallery in Perth. I was very keen to go and look as I have always been very anxious that my work is presented so people can enjoy looking at it. And it is that experience of enjoyment, of looking and seeing, that is the bridge between me and the viewer. But when I got to Perth, there was a strike on the airline and it lasted three weeks. During that time, Australian painters appeared to help pass the time, which was simply marvellous. That visit to Perth was the only long stay in one part of Australia that I've ever had. And we went out to see Howard Taylor, who they thought, quite rightly, I would very much like to meet and see what he was doing. So we drove through this landscape of Western Australia, this blonde landscape, and arrived at a very small house, clearly built by hand, where Howard lived with his partner. It was extraordinarily dark inside, which was a huge relief. So your eyes became adjusted to seeing things in a different way. And I think that was a very important thing for him. This difference separated the studio and his working life from the landscape. Ah, so it sort of encouraged an interior world in a way. Yes, it did. A reflective one, I would say. The house was very small, but every single little space in it was doing something. And he showed me two things, rather like pallets, that he was working on, which could also be seen as tree shapes. You could hold the stem and look in different ways, which was a nice way of looking at an image. And what was Howard's background? How did he end up here? Well, he'd been in England, he'd been in the Australian Air Force, and had taught in an English art school. I think that one led to the other. We talked about the Outback, but not a great deal, because it was simply there. It was not something that you could discuss. When I look now at No Horizon, this work of his... I find the title very, very interesting. I feel that I can see no horizon.
1: Especially given that he was in the outback, which has huge horizons. And what do you think the title
2: indicates? Usually a horizon implies a sense of space and a limit to that space. In nature, these are variable. Horizons between land and sky, between sea and sky, or a combination of both. The horizon is determined by the eye, by the viewer. One goes somewhere, walking over cliffs, down paths, across beaches, and the horizon accompanies you. And for an airman, flying wherever he was flying, well, where is it? It shifts enormously, and it can drop out of sight. I think there's a feeling of great space in the horizon a space which curves, a space which also contains and has an absoluteness. It's so well seen. And that's, I think, why I feel so drawn to it.
1: And were these concerns that you were exploring in your own painting at the time, in terms of horizons or no horizons and the quality of light and your own perspective on those?
2: Yes, I have used vertical lines, diagonal lines, horizontal lines, In themselves, they don't symbolise. They fulfil a particular range of functions. So in terms
1: of Howard Taylor, how do you think No Horizon reflects his relationship to nature?
2: I think it must be part of his experience of flying over such enormous spaces.
1: So speaking about horizontal lines and vertical lines and horizon lines... Your own painting, Gamelin, which you made in 1970, using synthetic polymer paint on canvas, is a striped painting, which is almost three metres wide. And how do you feel that this painting explores not only these ideas around horizontality and verticality, but also about the experience of being in a certain place?
2: Well, in fact, I made Gamelin in the 70s. Soon after, I met Howard Taylor. on the way back to England... I stopped off in Jakarta to see Borobudur. Borobudur is a great Buddhist temple. It's built on a square and it has an open center. It has a promenade lined with Buddhist statues that one can walk around. It is a wonderful, great, monumental, and very still place. On that same visit to Jakarta, I heard the gamelan played. It is sparse, sharp, percussive and a very pure instrument. And it seemed to complement the spirit of the temple. Full, rich, curves and weight is there. Weight, nothing like the lightness and sharpness of the gamelan. But that contrast
1: was the key. And how did that experience of music influence your
2: choice of colours in your painting, Gamelan? I used three strong colours, red, blue and green on a white ground. Green is the constant surrounding both the others. The proportion of the red varies. They draw back from the centre, slowly exposing shade, gathering a shadow, a veil, even a softness, creating a contrast, a source of energy, if you
1: like. And have many of your paintings been influenced by music in this way?
2: Yes, I would hope so. I introduce what one might call the theme, the form or the colours, and then their opposite. Then I return to what I've introduced and develop it a little. Then I return to the opposing thing and develop that considerably. Last of all, I close with a return, a reminder what you have seen or what you have heard.
1: One of your major influences in your painting practices has been the 19th century French artist Georges Seurat, whose painting Study for Le Bec du Hoc Concombe, is in the National Gallery Collection. And he painted the work in 1885 with oil on canvas. What is it about Seurat that has kept you coming back to him throughout your career as an artist?
2: I think that my initial interest in Seurat has developed and grown through a shared preoccupation in how we look and how we perceive and a love of contrast in painting. He not only created work that is extraordinarily beautiful, but work that inspires. It inspired Van Gogh, Matisse, Deloney, The Futurist and many others, and it gave me a start. I still feel a thrill whenever I look at the bathers in the National Gallery here in London, quoting to myself, which I do, Felix Fennell's famous dictum, let the hand be numb, but let the eye be agile, perspicacious, cunning. It's a battle cry. Mm-hmm. But all this would not have been possible without Monet. He went first. And so what did Syrah take from Monet? And then what did he do with it? Certainly working out of doors, sur the motif, like this study for the Bec de hoc The final painting, the Bec de hoc itself, was painted in the studio. The study provides visual material, the information Seurat is going to need to make his painting. It's very carefully analysed. He uses an optical mixture of colour Le Mélange Optique, the French call it. And if you take this mixture apart, you see that this wonderful colour of reflected light inside the cliff has deep purples, reds, oranges, and also lighter colours within it to help the luminosity. These are notes, visual notes, painterly notes for the making of the painting. And this was an approach
1: that you were exploring early on in your career too. I mean, we're sitting beneath a painting that you did on a journey that you took, I think it was in the 1960s.
2: Yes, it's Pink Landscape. And I painted it in the late 50s. But before that, I had copied a small painting in the courthold. But I copied on a larger scale so that I could follow Seurat's thinking. A small painting by Seurat? Yes, Le Pont-de-Cord It's a painting of a bridge over the River Seine, seen early on a chilly autumn morning. Seurat divides his colours and applies them with the pointed tip of his brush in separate touches of pure colour. So small that they blend and mix together as you look, so your eye will be doing the mixing. And this active looking engages you. The viewer plays a major role in the making and realising of a work by Seurat.
1: So in terms of this wonderful artist, in a sense, taking notes when he's making a painting, it's a form of investigation, which is something that has deeply informed your work, of course, which has always been a form of investigation into looking and a response to looking.
2: Yes, it has. It's a thrilling and mysterious thing. Looking, what one can see and understand can be honed with exercise and interest. It's an extraordinary and rewarding journey for anyone able and willing to undertake
1: it. One of the other themes of our conversation today, I think, has been about journeys. We've been to Indonesia, Australia, and France. Travelling and looking. (laughs) So maybe we could finish off with another journey. The final artwork you've chosen is Blue Poles by the American artist Jackson Pollock, who was born in 1912 and died in 1956. And he made Blue Poles in 1952 out of oil, enamel, aluminium paint and glass on canvas. It's a huge painting at almost five metres wide and two metres high. And I'd love to know how you first came across Pollock's work.
2: Painters in England had heard about Jackson Pollock and New American Painting for quite some time before I had the opportunity to go to America. There had been an exhibition, the new American painting at the Tate. We had been, of course, either growing up or those of us who were older, preoccupied by the war. But we were aware that America, having had relative peace, had been able to carry on to keep the flame burning And so we were really very, very interested to see what they had been doing. Could you tell us more about this exhibition at the Tate? It was altogether thrilling, that American show at the Tate. But the one painter that stood out was Jackson Pollock, hung towards the end of the exhibition. He was far more advanced than anyone else. A little while later, Brown Robertson put on a spectacular exhibition of Pollock at the Whitechapel Gallery. It was the White Chapel in its original form. You came in straight off the street and walked into a very large exhibition space with a few specially built low brick walls painted white. Towards the end of the exhibition, all the walls were painted black. Bearing in mind that none of us had seen these paintings that we'd heard so much about and longed to see, this way of introducing us to what was startling, amazing and extraordinary, by presenting the work in two different ways within the same exhibition, helped people enormously to see his work, the ideas, the thoughts, and the same passionate intensity in two contrasting visual contexts. And it was the major
1: US painter, Barnett Newman, I think, who introduced you to Blue Poles on a trip to New York City.
2: I had seen Barney's painting in the Tate exhibition in London and I was delighted to meet him at the opening of my exhibition at Richard Feigen's gallery in New York. It was the beginning of a good friendship. He and Annalee took me to see three wonderful abstract expressionist paintings in Ben Heller's apartment, one by Mark Rothko, one by Barney himself and Pollock's Blue Poles. We talked about the paintings, and Anneli pointed out a new colour in Barney's painting, and we studied blue poles for some time in silence. It was physically stunning, and exactly what it should be. (laughs) And what is that? A great painting. Mm. It was thought that Barney might have suggested the poles to Pollock, and I wondered whether this was so. And did you ask Barnett Newman if he had suggested the polls? Yes, I did. He didn't answer immediately. But standing back, straightening himself, he said, Jackson's painting. Jackson signed it and pointed to the corner, down there. (laughs) I want to thank you
1: very much, Bridget Riley. It's been absolutely fascinating talking with you today. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm Jennifer Hickey, and this has been Artists, Artists, brought to you by the National Gallery of Australia. This podcast is part of the National Gallery's Know My Name initiative, celebrating the contribution of all women artists to Australia's cultural life. See their art, hear their stories, and know their names. Information about the works of art discussed in this episode can be found in the episode show notes. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast app or listen at nga.gov.au. This is a people-powered podcast made possible through donations to the National Gallery. Your support helps us elevate art, artists and the National Collection. Make a donation today.